Texas Jack, the White King of the Pawnees, by Ned Buntline, author of Buffalo Bill, etc. Chapter 19, In Captivity Again. The readers, fair ones especially, we feel, have been anxious to know the fate of brave Adeline Churchill and poor Lucille. And being tender-hearted ourselves, we cannot keep them any longer in suspense. When night fell deep upon the column, Adeline whispered to Lucille to watch with her for a chance when they should pass among rocks, and at the moment she dropped from her horse silently on one side, Lucille was to drop on the other and crouch down behind the rocks until the column passed on. Then, if undiscovered, they would hasten out of the line of march and trust in providence to avoid recapture and find help. For better it was, in their minds, to starve alone on the bleak plains than to live and meet the fate they dreaded among those human fiends. At last, a place was reached where two abreast had just room to ride along, great boulders of rock being thick on either side. The guard even had to fall back here. Now, whispered Adeline to her companion, now is our time. And quick as a falling shadow, almost as still, she slipped from her horse and crouched down behind the nearest rock. Lucille, at the same moment, followed her example on the other side. The actions of neither were noticed, for their horses, relieved of their weight, moved on in the line as steady as before. Thus, the discovery of their escape remained safe until the column halted, as already described. The moment the column had gone out of sight and hearing, Adeline crossed to where Lucille was hidden, and grasping her cold hand, said, Come, little woman, come quickly. We must be far away from here before daylight, for when we are missed, La Salle and Lamour will be furious. They will search for us, and should we be found, heaven only knows what the wretches would do. Lucille needed no urging to go, and to go fast, but her thoughts were upon her child. Let us try to go back on the route we came, she said, if I can only get to my poor baby before it starves. We may take the course, but we must keep out of the track, for it is there they will look for us, said Adeline. And she hurried off almost at a right angle from the trail of the column, not heeding where she went, so that Lucille followed, and both were getting further and further from the wretches in whose power they so lately trembled. Running rather than walking, falling sometimes in the darkness, but quickly springing up and going on, the two women hurried away, really not knowing what course they took. At last, just at the glimmer of day, stopping to take breath, Adeline scented smoke. Without a thought of new danger, she cried out, We must be near a camp. Perhaps those who pursue the robbers are near at hand. A fire! I see a fire! exclaimed Lucille, rushing toward it. Adeline followed, and the next instant both found themselves in the presence of real, unmistakable Indians. With a scream of terror, Lucille turned to fly, but a tall warrior laid his hand upon her shoulder, and she sank, terror-stricken at his feet. Adeline, more self-possessed, finding three or four more Indians before her, addressed one who seemed more ornamented and best armed, evidently the head man or chief. "'Who are you, and what do you want?' she said in French. The savage evidently did not understand her, but there was something in her language which struck him, and he called a half-breed squaw from the lodge of buffalo skins that stood near. She spoke Canadian French, and now through her, Adeline managed with difficulty to get into something like an understanding with the chief, for such he was. She found that this was a small hunting party of Sioux, commanded by this chief, a sub-chief in the Oglala tribe, and that they were at war not only with the whites, but all the tribes which bordered their country. When Adeline explained as well as she could that she had just escaped from bad white men with her companion and wanted to be taken back to the great iron road from which they had been carried away, the chief shook his head. He could not go to the railroad without having a fight. 
The soldiers of the great father by the sea were plenty there and would try to kill him and his people. Then Adeline tried to have him guard her for the trail, telling him that there were people coming to help her and overtake the bad men who had killed her friends and stolen her. The chief, alarmed at this information, instantly broke up his camp and hurried her and Lucille off with his own people toward some timbered hills to the northwest, where he could easily find concealment from the troops if they were indeed near. Now Adeline, as well as Lucille, feared that their lot would be a hard one, for the chief, through his squaw, the half-breed, gave them to understand that when they got back to his village, they would formally be adopted into his tribe and be given to two warriors, his sons, for wives. Their only consolation was that now they were treated not as rudely, but were given a place by themselves, curtained off with robes in the chief's lodge while the camp was pitched, and had all the meat they wanted without being forced to labor like the other squaws. This was their treatment for the first day and the next, while the chief camped in the wooded hills to avoid the troops that he saw passing in the distance. On the third, without explaining why, he broke camp. He did so suddenly, and a forced march of all that day and the succeeding night in a cold, pelting storm gave the poor women more discomfort than ever. It almost seemed as if death would be a relief. In vain did Adeline question the half-breed squaw as to the cause of this swift and sudden journey. She either would not or could not tell. Their route took them into a region of steep but broken hills where deep chasms were frequent, along which they were forced to ride, looking down into dangers which made them tremble for life, even though they almost wished for death. The chief kept on until his ponies were completely tired out, and then entering a broad stream which flowed through a valley, he kept his course along in the water for a short distance, where he forded it, and entering a dense grove of evergreen trees, camped. From his actions and frequent glances to the rear, Adeline was satisfied that there was some force following the chief. Whether it was that of LaSalle and Lamore, or those who would be friends, she could only conjecture. But now, when he was hidden in the dense growth of evergreens, he allowed his exhausted ponies to rest, and while his squaws put up the lodges for himself and his little band, he lighted and smoked his pipe for the first time in all the hurried march. He seemed to think that his enemies... Whoever they were had been thrown completely from his trail by his endurance and cunning. Perhaps they were. Chapter 20. An Alarm Sounded The column went on slowly. When night went into the sickening desert, though LaSalle pressed his horses all he could to get beyond its deadly borders quickly. The way was difficult by day, and much worse at night. When the night shadows became so dense that Buffalo Bill knew his motions could not be seen, he spoke in a low tongue to Texas Jack, using the Pawnee tongue as a medium. Jack, he said, I shall cut your bonds in a minute or two. Keep cool and quiet, and when I hand you the knife, do the same favor for the young Frenchman on your right. I will, but how on earth came you free? I found a friend and brother in my hour of need, said Buffalo Bill. It isn't the first time either that light has come to me in an hour of darkness. But hush, you're free. Free from young Carl, but do not turn or move till I give the word. I expect I'll have to kill the cuss who's behind us. All this, spoken in Pawnee, in an undertone, passed unnoticed by Lamore. But when, soon after, the horses of the two scouts and that of Edouard de Carl evidently lagged in their speed, allowing those preceding them to get ahead, Lamore ordered them in a bitter tone to push on. How can we urge our tired horses on when we can neither see the hand nor foot, said Buffalo Bill, just loud enough for Lamore to hear him. I'll help you, or kill your lazy beast, said Lamore, pressing forward and striking the haunch of Powderface with the flat of his hand. Now Buffalo Bill had taught that animal several tricks, 
one of them being to kick straight out when its rider's toes are pressed in near its forelegs. Buffalo Bill touched the spot just as Lamore slapped the vicious little horse, and the consequence was an immediate elevation of the animal's heels with such terrible precision that both took the Frenchman squarely and heavily in the breast, knocking him literally stiff from his saddle. Keep your saddles, and hold fast where you are till I speak. Then be ready to turn and follow me, said Buffalo Bill, bending down and snatching up the rifle which Lamore dropped. Listening until, without taking the alarm, the column went on out of hearing, Buffalo Bill turned his horse, and leaving the Frenchman as he fell, the three, Texas Jack, Carl, and himself, rode back on their trail, leaving the horses to find it in the darkness, with that sagacity which makes them often superior in such cases to their riders. After riding for some time, Buffalo Bill felt that it was safe to speak aloud. Mr. LaSalle's in bad luck with his prisoners, he said in a tone of glee. We're the second batch that he's lost. What do you mean? asked Texas Jack. That last night, two women got away as luckily as we have tonight. Heaven! Oh, I know why I could not see them, cried the young artist. Yes, Adeline Churchill and poor Lucille have escaped. But oh, where are they? Wondering about perhaps in these frightful solitudes, they will perish by starvation or be devoured by wild beasts. Not much danger of either, said Buffalo Bill. The prickly pears are full ripe now, and plentiful, and there's plenty of berries to be found. As to beasts... There are none that would hurt a human being without that they were wounded and at bay. The only trouble is that lost and wondering, they may have been picked up by some Indian band. Then, if they're young and pretty, their lot will be a hard one. If some of the romantic lovers of the noble red man could see, as I have seen, how the red cusses treat white female captives, they'd drop their sympathy and say wipe the inhuman wretches from the face of the earth. Ah, an alarm in our rear. Our escape has been discovered in some way. Ride now as if the devil chased us. Follow me. I shall take the North Star for my guide. If they take the back track, we'll be off a long line before they ever get here. Shots were heard far to the west, fired not rapidly as in action, but as if in intervals for signaling. I reckon that cuss wasn't kicked stone dead by Powderface as I thought he was when he fell, and he tried to fire to call help from the column, said Buffalo Bill. Yes, he is firing and the answer comes from a long way further on. We'll be out of their reach before they can get back or have light to strike out on our trail, said Texas Jack. Keep a going, Bill. You know the country better than I. It is a mighty poor country to brag about knowing, said Buffalo Bill. It's like country cousins to a city chap. He doesn't like to say who they are when he shows them around. How do you know, Bill? You're not a city chap. I know that, Jack. But then Joss Billings was so, and he's like George Washington. He never told a lie. Texas Jack laughed. Josh Billings was a favorite with him, as he is with most men of sense. Chapter 21. Troops and Indians. Halt! We're overtaken. Halt and stand to your arms, shouted LaSalle, when suddenly from his rear he heard a shot fired. Then, while the straggling column closed up, hearing five more shots fired, as if it inversely said, it must be a signal, pass the word back to the lieutenant to know what it means. The word went back along the line and returned, then LaSalle learned that the lieutenant was missing. Quickly he fired four shots from his own heavy revolver, and far away to the rear he heard an answering shot. Then the word came on that the lieutenant and the three prisoners were gone. Placing a small guard in express charge of the women, LaSalle instantly faced the rest about, and heading back, went back down the trail. A mile or two on he found Lamore on the ground, groaning and unable to rise, with his shoulder dislocated and his collarbone broken. He only waited to hear Lamore tell how he had been stricken from his horse, and that he did not know what had become of the prisoners. 
and then leaving one man to help him, pushed back with the rest of the force at his best speed, for he believed he could overtake the scouts on the trail at least by the break of day, and kill them before they could communicate with the Pawnees and advancing troops. Wild with anger, his curses were loud and bitter as he rode along, and his worst men almost trembled at his ferocious words. In the darkness, the tired horses made poor headway, but finally they emerged from the desolate region that we have described as so pestilential and came out of the timbered region on the hills. Here the captain knew that the escaped men would be likely to take cover unless they meant to keep going back till the troops were met, and here, in spite of haste and anger, he decided to wait for the dawn of day when he could see tracks. Closing up his ranks, he dismounted all the men and bade them to take what rest they could while the horses browsed around at the length of their lariats, for they would take advantage of all the time they had. Day seemed a long time coming, as it always does to a watcher, but at last the east showed a gray tinge, and then it turned to purple, and LaSalle could see, examine the trail. They've not repassed on the trail, he muttered, as he looked long and carefully over the ground marked by his column. Every track points forward. The lieutenant must have been awful careless to let himself be surprised, said Mormon Ben. The prisoners, securely bound, were all riding three abreast when I left him, and I cautioned him to look closely to them, for such as they are hard to keep. He's a self-confident fool, said LaSalle. I should have known better than to leave him where I did. I thought the bitterness of his hate would make him more watchful than any other man in the band. But he's paid dear for his carelessness. He will be helpless for weeks to come. Well, I can't say as I'm sorry, Captain. The men all like you, but they say he knows nothing, only to put on airs. I know that, Ben. I shall look on him as a supernumerary hereafter and give you his duty. You're an old hand and a true one. Thank you, Captain. Thank you. Have you any idea what course the scouts would take? asked LaSalle. The back trails, I should think. But you say there are no back trails. They must have dodged off at some point. We'll ride back as soon as our horses feed a little bit more, said LaSalle. Then we'll see where the men left the trail, for their horses must leave deep tracks. They're well-fed and heavy. Troops. Troops and Indians, shouted a sentinel, who LaSalle had posted a hundred yards or more to the east. Mount, men, mount, shouted the captain. Chapter 22. Killing a Bear When the day dawned on the two scouts, Texas Jack and Buffalo Bill, and the artist, Edouard de Carl, they were clear of the arsenic plains, and in a group of pleasant hills, between which are some very pretty valleys, laying like dimples of beauty. Small streams meandered here and there, and had they only been out on a hunt or on a pleasure trip, they would have gloried to find such a lovely country. But they and their horses were wearied out, and as soon as they could strike a stream wide enough and deep enough to conceal tracks, they rode into and along it for a couple of miles, and then emerging in a glade where the grass was sweet and plenty, they turned the animals loose to feed, and went themselves into a thicket nearby to rest. For as Texas Jack said, if they did not rest and let the horses feed, they would be unable to fight or to run. Exhausted nature asserted her rights, and the men, once asleep, slumbered for hours. The neigh of Powderface woke Buffalo Bill up, and it was almost sunset when this occurred. Springing to his feet, Buffalo Bill saw the sagacious animal standing near the edge of the thicket where his master had lain down, with his small ears pointed forward and his sharp eyes looking wild. The insect has heard something that speaks of danger, said Buffalo Bill, as his two companions rose to their feet. Why, how long have we slept, said Edouard de Carl. No longer than we needed. Both us and the horses are now fit for work, said Texas Jack. True, and we'll go in search of those two poor women, will we not, cried the artist. 
It'll be a hard search when we have no idea where to strike the trail, said Texas Jack, but we'll move a bit before darkness comes on, and I'll drop a deer from that herd below there for our suppers. I don't know how you feel, but I'm as hungry as a border in a city hash house. I reckon a bit of broiled deer meat will not be thrown away on either of us, said Buffalo Bill, and then added, but I say, Jack, will it be safe to fire again? We don't know whether we've been followed by that gang or not. Hadn't you better use your lasso? I would if there were any buffalo in sight, said Texas Jack. Deer and antelope are too quick on the jump. There is something that will not jump out of your way, said Buffalo Bill, as a huge brown bear emerged from a thicket nearby and walked slowly down to the watercourse. I'll have him. Bear meat's good enough for hungry men any day, said Texas Jack, seizing the hide lasso which hung at his saddlebow. Shall I mount Powderface or go on my own horse, Bill? Take Powderface or the beast will drink and get away, said Buffalo Bill. Without waiting for saddle or bridle, Texas Jack sprang on the horse and rode at full speed toward the bear, whirling his lasso high in the air as he approached it. The bear, startling at the noise of the bounding uh, hoofs, turned and rose up at his hind feet with an ugly growl, thus making itself a fair mark for the whirling rope of the brave hunter. Texas Jack laughed as he sent the noose flying from his hand, for it settled fairly around the neck of the huge beast, tightening in a second as he turned Powderface off at a gallop and drawing the bulky animal over on its back. Buffalo Bill, with the artist, also laughed as the beast, howling with terror, rolled over and over on the ground, trying with its unwieldy paws to tear the suffocating lasso from about its throat. "'Watch your chance, Bill. Watch your chance and give him the length of your knife and the jugular,' cried Jack as he drew the beast over and over on the ground. "'He'll break loose, maybe, if you don't.' Buffalo Bill now sprang forward, and watching for a moment when Jack slackened the line so that the bear would try to rise, he stepped behind it and drove the knife hilt deep in its throat. "'He's got all he wants,' said Buffalo Bill, as the blood gushed in a torrent from the wound. "'You can slack up, Jack, for he'll not last three minutes now.' Then he hurried to get his saddle. Edward de Carl doing the same, while Texas Jack dropped the lasso, left the bear to die, while he drove in with the other two horses." By the time they were in, the bear was dead, and Buffalo Bill, having cut off one of his hams, mounted so that they would ride to a better camping place before they built a fire to cook the meat that they all needed. The sun, now down, left a rich and lovely glow in the western sky, and the artist, in spite of all his troubles and sorrows, could not help but admire it. While he was gazing, he saw, but it was for a second only, the tall form of an Indian on a hill beyond them, plainly too between him and the crimson sky. Look! Look, he gasped, but the Indian was out of sight before he could call the others to see him. In truth, as he spoke and pointed to the hill, where they could see that a single point of rock standing clear on the ridge, they did not believe he'd seen an Indian, but thought that his fancy had misled him. In the morning we'll take a look over there, said Buffalo Bill. If we find signs, we'll think more of your eyesight. But tonight we'll camp and kill hunger. Then tomorrow we will strike the trail of the troops, or something else. So they rode across the stream, skirted the hills for a mile or so, and in a deep, well-concealed hollow, close by an overhanging cliff, halted, picketed their horse, built a fire, and feasted on bear meat. Chapter 23. A Promise of Presence After the Oglala chief, who rejoiced in the name of Wide Mouth, had got into camp amongst the dense evergreens, probably thinking all traces of his route were lost after he took water, he seemed quite contented and good-humored. He had plenty of dried meat for provisions, there was tender grass for his ponies, and he seemed pleased to have got beyond pursuit, for he evidently had believed himself pursued. Seeing him in such good humor, Adeline thought she might learn something through the half-breed squaw, and perhaps might, by promises of presence, 
get him to take her and Lucille at least to some trading post or settlement. So pleasing the squaw with a present of a silken scarf, which till now had been worn about her own neck, she got her to ask the chief what had made him travel so fast. Widemouth saw, just at sundown, two terrible enemies of the Sioux Nation, two pale-faced warriors who are such great medicines that no bullet will kill them, no arrow can find its way to their hearts. Long rifle and whirling rope were close to our camp, and we had to move fast or they would have found us. The great spirit was the friend of Widemouth, for he sent rain in the night to hide our tracks. So now Widemouth is not afraid of his enemies. He will rest here till he thinks they have gone home to their camp by the big fort on the Platte. Then he will start for his village at the head of the Laramie, and the white squaws shall see the new husbands. Would not the great chief like to be rich, so as to buy many horses and plenty of guns and warm blankets? asked Adeline through her half-breed interpreter. How can that be? asked the Indian. I have rich friends who will give a great deal to see me, said Adeline. She only thought that if once they could be used, she had some diamonds concealed on her person that would buy friends and make riches to enable her to fulfill any promise when she spoke. The friends of the White Squaw are the enemies of the Sioux, said Wymouth thoughtfully. If he was to listen to her song now, she would hear his death song by and by. No, I would speak good words for my great chief. My friends would be his friends. I will swear it under the all-seeing eye of the great spirit. The chief smiled. He doubted the ability of the captive to make her words good. Like all Indians, he thought there was neither strength, worth, nor influence in a woman. Like shadows, they were nothing, fit only for slaves. Not companions, the Indians regard women. Therefore, poor Adeline had but a slim chance to get her freedom through him. She did not understand, or for a moment think that the men who he called Long Rival and Whirling Rope could be her friends. Nor did she ever dream that Edouard de Carl lived to try to aid her. Lucille was little comfort and no aid to her now. The poor woman wept and moaned about her starving babe all the time, and no words seemed to comfort her or to give her hope. She was of a different mold from her heroic mistress, who would not despair no matter how dark all seemed about her. Let the worst come. We will escape or die, said the latter, when all attempts to induce the old chief to carry her to settlements seemed to fail. Then the white squaw will die, said the old chief, and now for the first time the poor girl learned that he understood English, for she had spoken in that tongue. Adeline was glad that she had learned this when she did, lest than talking to Lucille, as she did sometimes in English, she should have revealed some plan and been detected ere she had tried to carry it out. Now she would be on guard. Chapter 24 Flight of the Robbers Surprised at the sentinel's cry, LaSalle, quick to think and to act, knowing if he fell directly back and fled from his old trail that he would expose his women prisoners to recapture, and knowing also that with his detachment he would stand no chance of victory against regular troops, aided by Pawnee scouts, gave the word to his men, and as they mounted to scatter right and left, and to rally when and where they saw a smoke rise, for he would make it as a signal. Then shouting to Mormon Ben to keep with him, he darted off at a gallop, just as the troops and Indians came charging on, yelling wildly and firing as they came. Charging volleys are almost always random shots, and so they proved in this case, for the robbers on their rested horses dashed away in every direction, not a single one falling under fire, though the bullets flew like hail around them. The major, leading the charge, was almost wild when those whom he had helped to destroy or capture seemed to have vanished in the mist behind the heat of a rising sun. So completely had they disappeared, dashing away in the timber, that the troops, used to moving in a body, 
knew not whether to follow, and with the horses tired by such a long forced march, there was little hope in their overtaking the fugitives. But Bilgelk soon discovered the main trail, and he urged the major to push on, declaring that the men who had scattered would be apt to rally on it again. Thinking that this might be so, the major pushed forward, for annoyed and worried at the loss of his two scouts, he yearned to know what had become of them. But his horses as well as his men were almost exhausted, and when he advanced three or four miles further, though the country was arid and desert-like, he felt that he must halt and rest, or he would lose some of his animals from utter exhaustion. Arriving where a small stream of sluggish water wound around the red volcanic rocks, he called a halt, and told the men to dismount and water the poor beasts. The men were but too glad to do this, and the horses drank freely, though the waters were so warm and nauseous that the men could not bear them. The men were told that the halt would be for an hour, and they could lunch from the little food yet left in their haversacks, and most of them took advantage of the permission. The hour had not gone by when the horses began to show signs of suffering, many of them swelling up fearfully, and then the major and his men all at once realized that the waters were poisonous. The poor animals suffered terribly, and soon many of them were beyond suffering, falling dead about the stream. Even the men who had only sipped a little of the water were sick, and the major, to his deep distress, found his force dismounted far away from any chance of relief. A slow and weary march back would have been his only alternative now, depending for life on the game they could kill, and worst of all unsuccessful in the main object of the expedition. He decided to return, but Big Elk, who was devotedly attached to Texas Jack, would not turn back, even though all his horses were down, till he had seen or heard something of the whirling rope. Therefore he, with about thirty of his braves, kept on, following the main trail through the desert, while the major faced his men back to the east and sadly took the back track. Big Elk and his braves pushed forward swiftly, for they were used to foot marches, and soon after the sun had passed its meridian height, just where the timber once more began to grow, they came in sight of the women and the guard left over them by LaSalle. Luckily the robbers did not see the wily Pawnees when the latter discovered them, and quickly Big Elk prepared to take advantage of his discovery, before the robbers could learn that he was near. Swiftly and cunningly creeping on, keeping well under cover, Big Elk and his warriors soon reached a point where they could see how few men there were in charge of the women captives, and then, without waiting a second, for fear of reinforcements might be coming, the brave chief gave his terrible war cry and sprang upon the robbers. Completely surprised, the white wretches, instead of fighting like men, turned to fly, rendering their destruction a swift certainty. The women, expecting to be murdered too, were feigning with new terrors, while the Pawnees tore the reeking scalps from the heads of their late captors and guards, and when Big Elk spoke to them in their own tongue, and saying that he was their friend, asked after Texas Jack, Buffalo Bill, and the young artist, they could scarcely realize that they were safe. But as soon as the least excited of them could speak, they told all they knew, about three men having been captured, then escaping in the night, and that the captain of the robber band, taking the most of his men, had gone back in pursuit of them. Big Elk now knew how the troops happened to come up with and disperse a part of the gang, and knowing how very smart the two scouts were, believed that they would not be retaken. But gathering together all the horses and plunder with the liberated women, he hurried to return to the major, that the latter might protect the women while he hunted for the scouts, and trailed out to destruction the rest of the robbers so far as he could. Before nightfall, he had astonished the major with his success, giving him a small supply of horses as well as the captive women, thus relieving his mind at least on one point. 
but Big Elk was now the more determined to hunt for his friend Texas Jack, Buffalo Bill, and the artist, as well as the other two women who he was told about. So taking his braves with him, he went back once more on his trail. <laughs> 